0: Good morning. Good, morning. good morning. Excited to be here on another beautiful Sunday morning. I was teasing all that big crowd in the black that you guys are good Baptists. You all sat in the back row. So But uh there's this guide who was showing some visitors around the museum. The fossil in the glass case over there is two million and nine years old, he told them. How can you date it so precisely? Someone asked admiringly. Well, that's easy, said the guide. I've been working here for nine years, and it was two million years old when I came. <laughs> there was once a child who asked his mother, how were people born? So his mother said, Adam and Eve made babies, and then their babies became adults and made babies, and then their babies became adults, and, and so on. The child then went to his father, a scientist, and asked him the same question. And he told him, we were monkeys, then we evolved to become like we are now. The child ran back to his mother and said, You lied to me. His mother replied, No, your father was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> the discussion about creation and evolution can be confusing. Hey, thank you. <laughs> Some people would say that if you believe in creation, then you're a religious idiot who ignores science. Evolution is always often talked about in schools as fact rather than theory. And yet, when the theory is studied in detail, there are a lot of questions that don't have answers. In fact, your presuppositions about evolution probably guide how you interpret all the data that is available. For instance, there was once a judge who was about to swear in a member of the jury when he found out that the man was deaf in one ear. So he told the man, you really can't serve on the jury. The man said, why not? He said, because you can only hear one side.
1: Yeah. I think when it comes
0: to creation versus evolution, we often only listen to one side. In the compelling movie Expelled No Intelligence Allowed, Ben Stein demonstrates that when prolific scientists question some of the presuppositions of Darwinism, they often lost their positions or their reputation. So, today, what I want to do is I want to show you that within evolution, there are logical fallacies that exist built into the process. And as Christians, we can have confidence that God created the universe. So let's pray, and then we'll begin. Dearly Father, I just I thank you for a chance to tackle this huge topic. And Lord, we don't have enough time to do justice to this issue. But Lord, I pray that today we will start to see some little things that help us have confidence in the Word of God and know that it is true and factual. And God, we just pray that you'll guide our conversations today. And guide me as I preach from your word. In your name you pray. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for this message, there's obviously a lot that you can discuss. And I found myself overwhelmed by the vast amount of information and in trying to take that information to decide exactly what direction to head with it. And so as I was reading this week and reading books and reading uh, theology books and reading books on creation and reading the scriptures and all these different things, um, trying to figure out what direction to head um, on Thursday, I, I went back to the case for the creator, which I've read before. Um, and i have been listening to it on audio and really just felt like Lee Strobel's concluding chapter was helpful to frame our argument. So I'm actually going to steal the, the, um, the, the structure that he used in his last chapter, uh, for my sermon. If you don't know who Lee Strobel is, he was an atheistic, um, journalist and, uh, His wife became a Christian, and when his wife became a Christian, he set out to disprove Christianity. And in that journey of trying to disprove Christianity, he actually ended up becoming a Christian himself. And he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, uh, which outlines his journey from an atheist uh, to a believer because of the evidence they found on Jesus Christ. But since then, he's also written books like The Case for Faith, The Case for the Creator, and other books where he looks at the issues and examines them and and talks to experts and and those kind of things. So in his summary, in the case of the creator, he gives two possibilities to explain all of life. The first possibility is Darwinism. Uh, The Darwinism uh, theory, the theory that is taught throughout high school and into college. And the second uh, hypothesis is the design hypothesis. Right now there's a growing number of scientists that are moving towards intelligent design. And what they mean by that is they're not narrowing it down to uh, six days of creation, but they're saying there has to be a designer. And so there are agnostic scientists that are coming to that side. There are uh, Jewish scientists, uh, Christian scientists, uh, Muslim scientists, all these kind of things that are saying, okay, when we look at, at evolution, there are certain things that don't make sense, so there has to have been a designer. So, beginning with Darwinism and summing up some of the problems, Ali Strobel said that if I I realized that if I were to embrace Darwinism and its underlying premise of naturalism, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything, non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. So he said, based on this, I was forced to conclude that Darwinism would require a blind leap of faith that I was not willing to make. So he pointed to some of the inconsistencies that he saw in this theory. One, natural processes have utterly failed to explain how non-living chemicals could somehow self-assemble into the first living cell. Scientist Michael Denton says the idea that undirected processes could somehow turn dead chemicals into the extraordinarily the complexity of living things is surely no more nor less than the greatest cosmogenic myth of our times. Harvard biologist Stephen J. Gold described humans as a glorious accident of evolution which would require 60 trillion contingent events. That would require more than 36 necessary events per day each day for 4.55 billion years just to get Homo sapiens. And conveniently, each of these 36 daily events had to occur in the right place, at the right time, and in the right sequence. One scientist made this illustration that if you took all the parts of a car and you dropped it from 10,000 feet, that you would believe that it would assemble the car by the time it hit the ground. Scientists would say, well, over millions and millions of years. So if you take those same parts 100,000 feet in the air, you take them 100 million feet in the air, you take them 100 billion feet in the air, which... Gravity doesn't exist, so that wouldn't really work. But the idea that it drops down and it somehow assembles that if you just add time, that things will come into place. And his argument was was that isn't possible. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, no, that's the wrong that's the president. Theodore Rozak. Sorry. I didn't quote Theodore Roosevelt today. I kind of am I'm jealous of his mustache. Anyways, the irony is devastating. The main purpose of Darwinism was to drive every last trace of an incredible God from biology, but the theory replaces God with an even more incredible deity, omnipotent chance. And not only the, the chances that things, if time is in place, that these things will somehow come together, but the overall fossil record doesn't confirm the grand claims of Darwin about transitional species. Dr. David Raup, the leading paleontologist at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. Great place to visit if you have a chance to visit. Awesome place. He said this, 120 years after Darwin, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. In the fossil record, there's this thing they talk about, about the Cambrian explosion. There's all these fossils, and all of a sudden, there's a moment where where all these different fossils appear, all these new life forms. But it seems that there's... We see the fossil record as sudden appearance and then stasis, which means that things stay the same. Sudden appearance and then stasis. And Lee Strobel notes that the majority, or according to some experts, all of the world's 40 phyla, that's the highest category in the animal kingdom, virtually sprang forth with unique body plans more than 500 million years ago. The sudden appearance of these radically new life forms, devoid of any prior transitions, has turned Darwin's tree of life on its head. So because of this, scientists have tried to to rectify the lack of transitional species and tried to come up with different theories. And so in 1972, a new theory was posited, um, which was called punctuated equilibrium. And the idea is, okay, in, 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 in the fossil record, we see primarily stasis, but then we see these leaps. So there must be rapid, geologically rapid events for branching of speciation called Cladogenesis. It's the process in which species split into two unique, distinct species rather than one species, generally and gradually transforming into another. A year before that, uh, when in, before 1972, there was another paper saying that, that gradual evolution was seldom seen in the fossil record, so they proposed a different option. Darwin himself suggested that archaeology would show these transitional species, and if it didn't, it would be a devastating blow to his theory. So, because of all these issues and more, in the case for Christ, or Case for Creator, Lee Strobel outlines six reasons why he believes in intelligent design. And I want to give those for you today. First is the evidence of cosmology. There's an argument that's often used, and it's my favorite, and whenever I'm talking to people that that aren't believers, I I try to focus on this. I try not to focus on, on all the other details about evolution, but it's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Here's the way it goes. First, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Everything that has come into existence has a cause. If you see an apple, you're holding an apple. You can hold an apple because There was a seed planted in the ground that sprouted to become an apple tree. When you look at a child, you know that child came about because, well, ask your parents. um, (laughs) Everything that exists has a beginning. And so because everything that exists has a cause, something that caused it to come about, and we know that the universe has a beginning, scientists argue this too, everybody believes that, therefore, the universe has a cause. I talked about this last week. There has to be something that was eternal. So if there were eternal gases, something had to have caused those gases. If there were eternal, anything, a a proton, a neutron, something has to have always existed. And for me, it makes a lot more sense that there is an eternal God that has always existed than there is some matter that has existed eternally. Second, the evidence, evidence of physics. Gravity is fine-tuned to one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. I wrote that down, and I don't know if I said it right, but it's a lot of billions. The cosmological constant, which represents the energy, the density of space, is as precise as throwing a dart from space and hitting a bullseye just a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter of the earth. I have a hard time getting a bullseye throwing a dart from 10 feet away. But that's how, how unique physics is. Stephen Hawking said, The universe and the laws of physics seem to have been specifically designed for us. If any one of about 40 physical qualities had been more than slightly different values, life as we know it could not exist. Either atoms would not be stable, or they wouldn't combine into molecules, or the stars wouldn't form the heavier elements, or the universe would collapse before life could develop, and so on. All of this, many scientists now argue, is that it points to a creator, points to a designer. Third, the evidence of astronomy. Astrophysicist John. A. O'Keefe of NASA said that if the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could have never come into existence. If we were a little bit closer to the sun, our atmosphere would be too hot that it wouldn't be livable. If we were a little further away from the sun, our atmosphere would be too cold and it wouldn't be livable. Astronomy points to a designer, a creator. Evidence of biochemistry. Darwin said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modification, my theory would absolutely break down. Michael Behe in his book, he's a microbiologist and the author of Darwin's Black Box, talked about irreducible complexity. And in Darwin's time when they studied... Cells, they they didn't have the kind of technology that we have right now. And so he took two examples, and he looked at the cilia and the flagella. And they're, they're microscopic molecule machines. And all the elements that are in there are necessary for them to exist. And if you remove any one element, they wouldn't exist. So his argument is, how could they be built piece by piece without... You need all those pieces. To quote him, he said by irreducibly complex, I mean that a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, wherein the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. And irreducibly complex systems cannot be produced directly, that is, by continuously improving the initial function, which continues to work by the same mechanism, by slight successive modifications of a precursor system, because any of the precursor to an irreducibly complex system that is missing a part by definition is non-functional. As irreducibly complex biological system, if there is such a thing, would be a powerful challenge to Darwin's evolution." Now that was a lot of big words, scientists. I'm going to break it down for you a little bit simpler. okay? And so Michael Behe, used this example just to make sense. In my hand, I have a mouse trap. Now in our house in Lowell, we had a really big problem with mouse mice. Not mouse. I haven't set one of these up in a long time, I have to remember how these go. Okay. So with a mouse trap, you have the wood, you have the thing that you put the peanut butter or the cheese on, and you have the lever, and then I didn't think of how to snap this because I don't want to use my finger. Okay, and so if the mouse steps on it, then it snaps. Now his argument was a mouse trap is irreducibly complex. If you take any single Part of this mouse trap away, it won't work. And so in biology, he said, you know, based on the uh, the precepts that he learned and training and things like that, is that as things evolve, they generally evolve from more complex to less complex. They remove parts that they don't need. So you you know, like we learned as as humans that we don't need. Our appendix we don't really know what the appendix does so if you have an appendix attack we just take it out and you're good to go because the appendix doesn't do anything but in a mousetrap if you remove any part of it it doesn't work so when you looked at the cilia and the flagellum you looked at that they're irreducibly complex so there's no way for them to come into being because as microbiome micro, uh, organisms evolve they can't add things that aren't useful and so there's no way to get to the mousetrap from something else. So it had to have been created because otherwise there's no way for it to add parts. So that's it's an argument he calls irreducible complexity. And uh, it's a complex argument, but it's very simple. Just basically there are organisms that exist that are, that are at the simplest form. Nothing can be taken away from them, and they would still work. So therefore, if evolution was to happen and just slow processes of adding stuff, up until you have all these elements... This wouldn't work, so there'd be no reason for it to evolve into this thing. So hopefully that was taking his big words and making them a little simple, and I didn't get myself, so that's good. All right. Next, uh, evidence of biological information. The DNA in our body contains 100 trillion cells containing an alphabet that spells out precise assembly instructions for all the proteins from which our bodies are made. Cambridge-educated Stephen Meyer demonstrated that no hypothesis has come close to explaining how information got into biological matter by naturalistic means. The Cambrian explosion would have required an infusion of a great deal of new biological information. So in other words, there's no answer for how, how DNA and those things got so complex just through processes of evolution. Six, evidence of consciousness. J.P. Morgan, Moreland. I keep saying wrong names. Moreland, scientist. If the universe began with dead matter having no consciousness, how then do you get something completely and totally different? Consciousness. Living, thinking, feeling, believing creatures from materials that don't have it. But if everything started with the mind of God, we don't have any problem explaining the origin of our mind. So he gave those six evidences for intelligent design. First, cosmology, physics, astronomy, biochemistry, biological information, and consciousness. But then the question for us as Christians is well, what happened in creation then? Was it six days? Was it six time frames? What exactly happened? Arkent Hughes points out that there are actually six views that Christians hold on the six days of creation. One is that it's six literal 24-hour periods, 24-hour days, which took place in consecutive days. So 144 hours. Day one, day two, day three, six days, and then God rested. Another view says there's six literal 24-hour days, but that in between those days, there was a long time frame. So God created a day, but then there's a long time frame in between that day and the next day, and that's how we see differences in some of the geological records and things. There's also a gap view, which believes that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, God made creation. Now, the earth was formless and void. Okay, between that, there's millions or billions of years that happened. That's where Satan rebelled, and chaos ensued. And so now, God, in Genesis 1-2, is giving the account of his recreation of the earth. There's a day-age view, which views that each day stands for a geological age. There's a framework view, which views the six days as a literary structure to portray truth. And lastly, there's an analogical day, which believes that God's days are work days. So they look at 2 Peter 3.8. It says that what with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so they talk about that. So I wanted to take a moment, because there's a lot of confusion out there, and I want to talk about kind of the four primary ways that Christians view creation, So my goal today was to look at just some evidences that show maybe we should have some doubts about evolution, and then also look at how do Christians approach these issues when trying to figure out an answer to these perceived problems. First is the gap theory, that that theory that there's between Genesis 1 and 1 and 1 2, that there's potentially billions of years that's where satan rebelled and then god recreated the earth out of this form of chaos and there's various gap theories and basically we're trying to say okay the earth is billions of years old then how do we figure this out okay there must be a gap now i believe with the gap theory i don't see any evidence in the in the scriptures to point that when god was explaining things that there's this gap so so i don't i don't think that this is necessarily uh the best view out of all these Second, there's an old earth creationism, often known as progressive creationism. And they make a very good argument. The word yom that's used in Genesis uh, can mean more than just a single day. Uh, Yam, the Hebrew word for day, can also mean an age. In fact, in the Genesis account, in Genesis 2, uh, that phrase day is used to describe the, 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 it's used in all these different ways to describe periods of time. So the question is when it says there was a day in Genesis 1, as it's talking about a specific 24-hour period of time. Old earth creationists would see the six days of creation as six ages. Um, Or the other view that fits with this is seeing them as six literal days, but as times in between those days, as gaps. So they see the origin of life uh, and forms in the fossil record as due to millions of acts of special creation of God. So they would say, okay, so we see these discrepancies in the fossil record and it seems like uh, there's a time where there's animals and then there's a time where there's humans. And so what must be happening is is that there's these ages, there's these geological ages, and so the day doesn't mean a literal 24-hour period of time. And there are really uh, godly, wonderful Christians uh, that, that believe this, and I think this is an option. Um, but I believe in a young earth creationism, which is six literal days. And so I want to say that, and I'll get in a second that there's a lot of freedom here, but, um, so my view, the reason why I hold the six literal days consecutively is because I believe a lot of it can be solved by two things, by, by how God created and by the flood. Uh, first, when God created, I believe he created everything with age. Now people say, sometimes they call it an appearance of age, but I think literally age. So when God created Adam and Eve, he's like, poof, and there's adult Adam and Eve, fully formed as adults. I don't know how old he created them, 26, 27, 18, 35, I don't know, but God was like, Adam and Eve, there's an adult Adam and Eve, they're created with age. Bunnies, there's a bunny, you know, poof, it's already hopping, it's already running around. He, God created fruit, boom, there's an apple tree, the fruit is already fully formed so that Adam and Eve could eat the fruit. So everything in creation was created with age. Um, and so I believe that, that so we see the, the world and say it's billions of years old, we can look out and see, well, God created everything with age. It makes sense. The primary reason I hold this view is the word yom, which is used to be a day, occurs 1900 times in the Old Testament, and only 65 of those refer to a uh, something other than a literal day, which is about 3%. But each day in Genesis says there was morning and there was evening the first day. There was more evening, there was morning the second day, the third day, the fourth day. In the Ten Commandments, written by Moses, um, which also Genesis 1 was written by Moses. Now the Ten Commandments were written by God, but I'm talking about his description in Exodus. He wrote Exodus, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, "Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male, nor your female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Because Genesis uh, Moses wrote Genesis one and two and Exodus twenty. It seems consistent that he's referring to a physical day. And I also believe that a global catastrophic flood would account for many of the (laughs) geological discrepancies that we have. So when we look at six-day creationism, this view seems to contradict science, but as shown earlier, the evolutionary assumptions have a lot of flaws. So for me, it's easier to have faith in the simple reading of scriptures than to try and make things complex to account for fallible science. But with this in mind, I want to contend that whatever view we have, we should hold it with humility and understand that Christians might, ha- might interpret the evidence differently than we do. Dr. Brian Chappelle says, some of us are premillennial and some are amillennial, some are post-millennial. There are serious questions among us about the timing of events that will happen in the end of the world. Still, we recognize that people can differ over timing issues and still believe the Bible is entirely true. And we accept those differences without accusing one another of being unorthodox unorthodox. The same ought to be possible in the discussions we are having over the timing of the days of the beginning of the world. So good, orthodox, Bible believing, full of faith Christians can have different opinions about this issue. I was reading Wayne Grudem, and I was actually, if you want to have uh, a good podcast, if someone likes to listen to podcasts, Wayne Grudem has a podcast uh, called Systematic Theology, and it's him teaching through his book to a Sunday school class. And so it's really awesome because people are asking him questions, he teaches it in a way that's really engaging. So if you're like, I want to learn theology, but I don't want to read a dense theological book, it's a great podcast to listen to. But he was talking about how when he wrote his uh, book, Systematic Theology, which is used in a lot of the seminaries and and undergrad schools, he said when he was there, he felt like uh, he gave more weight to six-day creationism. That was kind of where he more so landed. But now he feels like he more so lands on the six ages. But he says, I'm not sure. He says there's not really enough evidence to say with certainty that we should interpret Yom this way or that way. And so that's where he landed. But what I'm pointing out is there are... Our godly, wonderful theologians who are saying it's really hard to, to figure out exactly what 's happening. Genesis one is written in narrative prose, so it's it's poetry, but it's written in narrative form, so we believe that it's it's a narrative it's, it's Moses accounting how God created the heavens and the earth, and how God created the earth and all the things on the earth, but it 's also poetry so so I don't think we need to have the primary focus especially on our evangelistic events, evangelistic efforts, talking to unbelievers, be about, oh, it's literally six days. Because uh, when we talk to people who don't know Jesus, if we say, okay, to believe in Jesus, you have to accept Jesus and six-day creationism, then they're going to be struggling. Now, I, I say that and understand that there are a lot of different ways that Christians approach these things. There's another way that Christians approach it called theistic evolution. And this is the framework view or the analogical day view where they say the Genesis 1 is a literary device. We see the poetry and and so it's a literary device to explain what happened. And oftentimes theistic evolutions will go, okay, so science is saying one thing and the Bible seems to be saying another. So the easy solution is just go, boom, God did evolution. God started it, it happened, problem solved. They brush their hands off, problem solved. But I think with theistic evolution, there's a lot of problems that exist in evolution, as I pointed out. And so I don't think that's the best solution. Uh, One theologian put it this way. When the scriptures say that the Lord formed man of dust from the ground, in Genesis 2-7, it does not seem possible to understand that verse to mean that God did it over a process that took millions of years and employed random development of thousands of increasingly complex organisms... Even more impossible to reconcile with an evolutionary view is the fact that this narrative clearly portrays Eve as having no female parent. She was created directly from Adam's rib while Adam slept. So it's hard to merge Genesis 1 with the evolutionary theory, and and I still think, once again, there's a lot of problems in that theory. So while I was in seminary, I, I had to write a paper to answer the question, was Adam a real historical person? I had to write that paper for Dr. Whitmer, not, not Governor Whitmer, Dr. Whitmer, spelled differently. And next week, he's actually going to here to preach on this very topic uh, about the historical animal. So, But I want to quote what I wrote in that paper. Uh, I, I updated the years to make the quote uh, apply to me today. I'm only 38 years old, and in the last 20 years, I've heard a number of scientific studies that have proven something to be true only to be found false or incomplete at a later date. Because I understand that science is is not inspired, and it's not without error, I don't have to get stressed out or worried that a scientific study will prove that the scriptures are flawed. I'm not worried because I have complete and utter confidence that the scriptures are God's inspired word and without error. With that said, I understand that I am fallible and that I can misinterpret the infallible word of God. I also know that God created the world and everything in it, including the natural laws which guide it. All truth is God's truth, including science. But elevating science to the same level as the Bible is dangerous because it is interpreted by presuppositions and contains variables that can lead to different results. To use the genome project as an example, and and, and, uh, Dr. Whitmer might reference this, but this is in the argument about historical Adam. It's one of the big um, things you discuss how do scientists know that the rate of change in genetic diversity would have stayed constant for thousands of years? How would the study be affected if this rate changes in genetic, the rate changes of genetic diversity were much slower or faster a thousand years ago? Does common ancestry with chimpanzees prove evolution? What about the genetic differences? How drastically would a worldwide flood affect the fossil record i don 't have answers to these questions, but I do know that these questions cause me to doubt the certainty with which I can hold on to scientific truth. In other words, I have complete confidence that God's word is inspired, it's inerrant, and what we hold when we hold the scriptures are God's very word to us. I have less confidence that the scientific method will be right on every jot and tittle. So because of that, I have confidence that God could have created the earth in six literal days, and what we're looking at in the scriptures is what we look at in a simple reading. On the other hand, because Hebrew narrative prose is poetry, I have confidence that I could be wrong. and God could have created over six geological ages. And that's okay. But I can hold true that no matter what approach we go to, that the scriptures are 100% in everything that they teach. It's not a science book, but that it's without error and completely inspired. And so if I have a brother or sister in Christ who believes differently than I do, I can say, that's okay. I think my view holds the most merit, which is why I hold to it, and that's how we view everything. But I can love you as a brother and sister in Christ, and know you're not rejecting the inerrancy or infallibility of God's word. So I want us to walk away with three things today. I gave a lot of information, and it's probably a lot harder to process. I encourage you to go and get The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel, to do your own research on this, go to... Websites like Answers in Genesis, if you you want to look at the the six-day view and how they tackle some of these scientific arguments. Uh, There's a lot of other great materials out there. But what can we walk away with today? This is a a big topic. One, confidence that God created the heavens and the earth. I think we can have utter and complete confidence. Evolution cannot explain the beginning of life. And when you push people on it, and you push the top evolutionists on it, they don't have an answer for how things began. They don't have... They they say, we don't know. And for me, that's not good enough. Because I know that scriptures say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I have confidence that evolution, if any parts of it are true, still point to the fact that there was a designer, that someone had to create everything. And I believe that is God. Second... I believe this should cause us to have a shift and focus in our evangelism style. I remember when uh, when I worked at McDonald's, and one of the things I really miss about working in, in, in a secular environment is just working next to someone day in, day out, and talking to them, to them about life. And we would talk about evolution and creation and all these different things. And I would be able to say when I was talking, well, some Christians believe you know, this happened, so I don't think that's a, a, a big... Um, uh, nail in the coffin to creationism, I said, I believe this, and here's why I believe it. I said, but let me tell you something. The biggest problem you have in evolution is origin. And I believe that without God, you can't explain it. And so we can, we can discuss all these other things about evolution or creation and try and figure out the fossil record and all these different things and have all these debates, and it's fun, and I like doing it. It causes me to go back and study and come up with the answers. But the answer you have to have is where did everything begin and I believe evolution does not have a good answer for that and because of that I think that's a great point a talking point when we're talking to people who don't know Jesus it's to point back to the origin of everything third this should be a challenge for us to study more challenge for us to read books on the topic to discuss this in your d group or your life group or your family to discuss this with an unbeliever A challenge for us to to dig deep into these things because people out there in the world are asking the biggest questions of life. What's the purpose of the universe? Where did I come from? Where did everything begin? And I believe as Christians we have good answers to those questions. So rather than just say, well, you know, God said it, so I know he did it, so we're good and I don't need to study anything else, we should study these issues and and get good answers so that when we have conversations with people we can point them to resources and we can say look i know you believe that but, but let me share something that i believe and it gives us a good starting point to talk with people that think differently than us so i don't believe that evolution has disproved the bible or creation i believe there's this false dichotomy that says we need to believe science or the bible because I believe the Bible teaches us truth, and that all truth, including science, is God's truth. Because God created all the laws of physics and geometry and everything else that exists in this world. And so I believe as Christians we have an opportunity to be a light in a dark world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that as I look around, I can know that everything that exists, you created it. Lord, I'm thankful that these issues don't have to be divisive issues among Christians who hold to a different theory. But we need to recognize that the, one of the greatest evidences for you that exists out there is nature. Paul says that, that because of nature, you, you're revealed to all of mankind. So we look around, we see the trees, when we see the sun, when we see the, the moon, we see the sunset. We look at the beauty, it all points to you, the creator of all things. So help us to reflect on that. But also help us, Lord, to have conversations with people that believe differently and have confidence that you created and to know that the, the answers to the meaning of life are found in you. Help us to point people to you in our daily conversations, in the way we live, the way we post on social media. In every area of our life, let us point to you as creator of all things. In your name we pray.